Every theatre has its stories. There are the ones enjoyed by audiences every night, the ones applauded and reviewed, the ones recommended to friends. Then, there's always the ones talked about behind closed doors, the ones in which the theatre itself becomes a character, often tragic. My name is Hugh Hick. In this series, we're sitting out in search of those stories, in four of Dublin's oldest theatres. This is Behind the Curtain. We're at the final episode of the series, and there's one major theatre we still haven't covered. The National Theatre. The Abbey Theatre. The space that's pretty much as famous as any of the plays that have debuted on its stages. There were 12 years between its establishment and the opening shots in the Easter Rising that would mark the beginning of the end of British rule. A rising that the Abbey's co-founder, William Butler Yeats, had mixed feelings about in his poem Easter 1916. But what part did the Abbey Theatre play in those 12 years leading up to the Rising? How did this national theatre establish itself amongst the bubbling frenzy of Irish nationalism? It turns out that the answer lies at the centre of the most infamous incident of the Abbey's early history, the Playboy Riots. Today, we go behind the curtain of the Abbey Theatre. We have some of the, the prompt scripts and pieces from the Irish Literary Theatre, and we have the, the programmes from the opening up. Pretty much we've got a 99%, I'd say, a collection of the programmes from 1904 to present day. This is Moray Delaney. She's been the archivist with the Abbey Theatre for the past 20 years, the first person appointed to the position, in fact. Myself and my co-producer, Heather, have been spending the afternoon in the Abbey trying to learn what we can about those early years. When we meet Moray, she's carrying a small rectangular box as innocuous as they come. But when she opens it, it's filled with all sorts of pieces from the very first productions. If you're into your theatre much, it doesn't get much better than the Abbey Archive. I ask Marie, does she have any favourites, or are they like her children and she can't choose one? She replies that none of them are exactly like her children, but she does have one piece that's close to her heart. An original prompt script from Sean O'Casey's play The Plough and the Stars. When you look at the last pages, this was what was on stage the night of the Abbey Fire. So the fire breaks out on the 18th of July, 1951. Irony, the irony is that the very last scene is keep the home fires burning. So you can see the, they're singing keep home fires burning. That night the Abbey goes up in flames. It's passers-by who actually notice the fire. And then they, they call the fire brigade. And they then, passers-by, help to rescue the painting collection that we have. So this is how these pieces have survived. But when I looked at it, I thought... This, you know, this is lovely, we have some, something from 1951, but when I really then started to examine it, it turns out that it's not just 51, it is 1926. It is the rehearsal uh, version, so you can see that during the whole process, Commandant Jack Clitheroe, who starts off as a clerk, like a white-collar worker, in the finished text becomes a bricklayer, so he changes class. So during the rehearsals, there's quite a lot going on, and any of these heavy ink here in the black, that's O'Casey, that's his hand. So he's actually there at rehearsals making changes and we can see the blocking or the directions by uh, Lennox Robinson. So it's, it's an artifact of not just 1926 but all those productions up to 1951. Like many of the Abbey's early plays, The Plough and the Stars is wholly connected to Irish nationalism. If you're not familiar with the play, it's in four acts. The first two are set shortly before the Easter Rising and the final two during the Rising itself. 
You don't have to even go as far as the plays to see the links between the Abbey Theatre and Irish nationalism, though. In the main foyer is a plaque dedicated to some of the key associates of the theatre who were involved in the Rising. So when the Abbey, this, this second Abbey, when it opened in 1966, they had a week-long series of openings. And on the second night, they unveiled a plaque to those who had been involved in the Abbey, the Abbey staff members and who had actually been involved in the Rising. But we were always aware there was a couple of people missing from that whole experience. So actually, in the last yeah. couple of years, we've gone through and we've actually tried to figure out, OK, so who was here and who, who was missing from the original plaque? And we've commissioned a new plaque. So we've added on a few people. Um, the most obvious of which I suppose would have been on the first, we have Sean Connolly. He is the first person to, to, to basically shoot his gun um, in Dublin Castle. And he's the first rebel to be killed in 1916. And he was due to be on stage in the Abbey that day. The plaque isn't the only history to be found on the Abbey's walls. James Hickson is the Tourism Experiences Coordinator with the Abbey, so he's used to putting the various strands that tie the Abbey's early years together into context. And there are a lot of strands. But the very beginning of the Abbey can be found on its walls, with the portraits of its founders, W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory. I suppose if you're to, when people think of kind of core founders kind of boiled down, um, you're probably left with, with W.B. Yeats. Um, his portrait is over here. Um, poet, playwright, goes on to be Nobel Prize winner, senator, etc. And then you've got Lady Gregory um, at the top of the stairs over there as well. Augusta Gregory, a folklorist, a historian, um, theatre manager with, with Yeats when the Abbey opens. Um, and it's Lady Gregory with W.B. Yeats and a writer called Edward Martin who in 1898 formed the Irish Literary Theatre. For the next couple of hours, James Moray take us on a whistle-stop tour around the theatre. James does a lot of these tours, and I can honestly recommend it. There's a lot of history in the building, a lot more than we could even touch on in a 15-minute programme. There's the fire of the 1950s, which pretty much gutted the building and forced a total renovation. Then there's the time the Abbey tried to get some compo for Glassbroken during the 1916 Rising, they didn't get it. Then there's the story that's seen as the defining moment of the Abbey's early years. The one that very nearly put them against the very sorts of names that now had pride of place on Moraid's plaque that hangs in the theatre foyer. The Playboy Riots. You might have heard of the Playboy Riots, even in passing. John Millington Singh, a playwright and contemporary of Yeats and Gregory, has this new play, The Playboy of the Western World. In it, Christy Mann bursts into Michael James Flaherty's public house in County Mayo, claiming he's killed his father, and grabs the attention of Peggy and Mike, the owner's daughter. As the play goes on, the locals become more and more attracted to this young fugitive who, to them, represents something dangerous and exhilarating. The play opens in the Abbey in 1907, and almost immediately there's outrage. This portrayal of the backyard country folk was just too at odds with the nationalist movement's attempt at creating this romantic Irish identity. That's the story, anyway. Over the course of this series, though, one thing's become very clear. There's usually more to the story. The part lost in the retelling. And quite often it's the more interesting part. Was this the case with the Playboy riots? I had no idea. But I knew one person who would. If you're trying to make the argument that Irish people are intrinsically more virtuous than English people or anywhere else in the world, having somebody who is made a hero for killing his father not once but twice, and then having the villagers turn into a mob that try to burn him on the foot, didn't really help things. This is Christopher Morash. 
You may remember he helped us out in a previous episode dealing with the Kelly riots. I would say he wrote the book on Irish theatre history, but I made that joke in the last episode and it wasn't really that funny then. In that same book, though, he does go into the background of the riots a bit, and there's definitely some stuff that's left out of the casual retelling. For a start, this wasn't Singh's first slap on the wrist from the nationalist community. His previous play was called In the Shadow of the Glen. It deals with Nora, who we first see tending to her dead husband, who it later turns out isn't dead, and by the end, she's absconded with a tramp. It has striking similarities with both Playboy and another famous play that features a woman called Nora that leaves her husband for a freer life, A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen. As scandalous as this upsetting of traditional views of marriage might have been in Ibsen's Norway, it certainly wasn't going to be received any better in a country trying to unite its citizens around traditional Irish values. And around the time of the production of Singh's Shadow of the Glen in 1903, there is a controversy erupts in the newspapers, particularly in the newspaper called The United Irishman, where you get quite three quite different versions as to what the theatre should do. You get Maud Gone writing it, basically saying, look, the only reason to have an Irish theatre is to produce authentically Irish work. And she uses quite flowery language to describe this, but basically for her, this is work that is rooted in the kind of an, an, a Celtic, Gaelic, I, rural Irishness. That's the only really authentic work. Then James Connolly writes in, and Connolly says, no, look, he says, if we were independent, you could do plays with anything you wanted. But at the moment, there's a struggle on, and the only purpose for a national theatre is to further that struggle. And then Yeats comes in, and he does what he always does, which is kind of comes at things through the completely opposite angle. He says, how we show we're free, and how we assert our freedom, is by having artistic freedom. And that means the artist has the freedom to do whatever they want. Your freedom is your artistic freedom, and that's how you assert your national freedom. These different ideas of what the arts are, or should be, lies at the centre of what happened just a few years later. Even when Playboy was still in rehearsals, Lady Gregory had written to Singh, saying, I feel we are beginning the fight for our lives. She wasn't wrong. As opening night curtain went up, things started well, with the audience laughing in the right places. But as it went on, the discomfort grew. How did this village full of Irish folk practically in delirium over the act of murder, and patricide no less, fit in with the Irish ideal? Then there was the one moment in the play, Act Two to be precise, that really set it off. When the play was on, the line that really made things erupt was one where Christie announces that he would have Pegeen Mike, he says, over um, it was an over, uh, over a, a line of women in their shifts themselves, right? So there's a whole row of women lined up in their shifts, which were the kind of exotic, you know, underwear that people wore in those days. He said, pass the by to go to Peggy Mike. Um, and it was the word shift that, you know, caused the trigger, but it had been building all the way through. And, and, and what in particular about that line did... Well, I think it was the idea that, um, well, first of all, that you could say a line like a word like that on the stage, um, but, but it was also this idea that you're actually talking about sex on the stage. You know, that here's a play that this is part of our Irish... You know, a company calling itself the Irish National Theatre Society, doing a play that has a sexual dimension to it, has a sexual dynamism to it. Lady Gregory, who had sent a telegram to an absent Yeats during the interval saying simply play great success, 
was forced to send another telegram at the end of the show. The telegram read, Audience broke up in disorder at the word shift. Like before, Yeats' reaction was one of indignation. He arrived in Dublin the following day and instantly began writing letters to newspapers, organising Q&As and generally making as much noise as possible. While Singh was trying to downplay the controversy, pointing out in interviews that the word shift had been used earlier in Douglas Hyde's Love Songs of Connacht, Yeats was more interested in questioning Irish society's attitude and close-mindedness to art. Or was he? There's two ways to read the actions of Yeats over those few days. One is an account of a poet genuinely shocked by his fellow citizens' disorder over a play. The other is one of an owner of a recently established theatre, a national one at that, still trying to find its own identity and to make its mark. And nothing makes a mark like a controversy. Well, yeah, I mean, Yeats, I mean, Yeats is many things. Um, he, he does understand publicity. He knows, you know, he knows how to make an intervention. I mean, you know, this is the man who wrote Easter 1916. You know, you know, what is the thing we remember from 1916? It's that poem. And he had a very strong sense. The thing that drew him to the theatre, I think, was he had a sense that there was a kind of energy in Ireland in those years. And that the energy was in the population itself, in the people. And if he could somehow channel that onto the stage, then the art would be magnified by that energy. So when he got that huge response to Singh's play, I think for him it was a kind of confirmation that there was an energy out there in Ireland that could be harnessed by art. And the theatre was a place you could do that. Like the Kelly rides before them, this controversy actually simmered out fairly quickly. Public opinion turned against the rioters, and before the run had even finished, it had just sort of blown over. But it had put the Abbey in the centre of the national conversation, exactly where Yeats wanted it to be. During our tour of the Abbey, James had pointed out one of his favourite artefacts in the theatre's possession. It's a mirror that hangs in the foyer, just on your left as you enter the main doors. It was commissioned for the opening night of the theatre in 1904 and has been there ever since, even surviving the fire of the 1950s. James likes that it's not by some big-name artist. In fact, it was crafted by fishermen in Yall. But he also likes something in the symbolism of it. What you get reflected back at you is you and your friends or whomever you've gone to the theatre with, your stories, your experiences. And for me, it's a really nice reminder of what a national theatre, I suppose, strives towards, that reflecting what's relevant, what matters, the backgrounds, the experiences of those in the audience. And maybe James is right. Not just about the National Theatre, but the theatre in general. Maybe it brings us back to that quote Christopher Morash has in his book that I mentioned in this series. How the history of Irish theatre is the history of its audiences. That every story that happens both on and off stage is tied to the hopes, dreams, fears and aspirations of the city it inhabits. Because the thing about curtains is, what lies behind one very much depends which side of it you're on. And maybe that's what makes theatre so enduring. That's our series. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hugh Hick and Heather McLeod. Special thanks to Marie Delaney, James Hickson, Christopher Morash and everyone at the Abbey Theatre. Behind the Curtain is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.